and community members have latched on to that. Um, and that's all it takes. So as leaders, as politicians, we have to be careful about what we say, what we endorse. And then as people, can we just please research? Can we dig into things deeper instead of just listening to everything that's presented to us? You see someone in the news and it's true. You see someone on social media, it's true. A politician says this and it's true. No, you need to actually go read. You need to go look at some YouTube videos. You need to figure out something for, for yourself. <laughs> Welcome everyone to another recording of the Hardwood Podcast. In this fifth season, I'm your co-host, Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley, a.k.a. the Hip Hop Forester, um, a.k.a. a number of cool things I would rather you all say about me. And of course, I'm doing this work with uh, my friend and co-host, Bennett uh, Alupo, who is keeping things going in the foreground and the background. And uh, so I'm glad to have him here. And today, today, we get to speak to another one of my friends. I'm happy to say that. OK, uh, this friend and is a leader an educator, an administrator, uh, is from Virginia. This person is a consultant. So right there, if you have professor, educator, consultant, and leader all in the same, this individual must be dynamic. And I'm fascinated and also honored that she said yes to me. I'm talking about none other than Bianca Myrick, in particular, the head of the Virginia Association of Environmental Educators. But we have a number of other things to share. We could talk about Pretty Purposed, we can also talk about Collective 365. So like I said, this leader is working, not hustling, working and leading. So Bianca, I want to say thank you for being here with us. It's time for the world to learn some new things from you, leader. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm, I'm really good. Thank you for having me. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I want to let, I want people to know uh, that I have watched, uh, I've been able to view, observe Bianca's leadership and see how it's positively already causing shifts in a great organization and knowing that the work that she's done before she got there, that before you got there is happening in other organizations. So I really just kind of want to, I just want to go ahead and just dive in and get educated myself. So here we go. You have been a consultant, a student, a teacher uh, at the Virginia State University, Virginia Commonwealth University, and of course, now leading the Virginia Association of Environmental Education. I want to ask you about your voice and knowledge. Um, do you feel in this wonderful work you know, that you're doing, um, how do you feel that what you are doing, and you can tell us some more about your job if you'd like, but you're out in the community a lot now, obviously. How do you feel like your voice and knowledge is being received you know, and if and and I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little juxtaposition in 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 relation to let's say people who may be in a similar, you know, I don't want to say level similar work experience. People who could be you know executive director, CEOs, you know, like yourself. So that's that's the first question. Yeah. So I think generally speaking, I would say the knowledge um, is well received. I do feel like my voice is heard, but what I have come to realize is thinking about just my personal and professional journey existing in multiple spaces, a lot of the times my voice being heard is directly related to like the power I have, um, the privilege that I might have, but also like what are the processes and structures 
of each entity that I'm existing in. So like, I'll give you an example and I'm going to like take it back, like a timeline almost, if that makes sense. So um, I went to undergrad at Virginia State University, the Virginia State University. (laughs) Say it, say it. Um, So attending there, I felt like I really belonged. Um, I was a student in the Department of Teaching and Learning, which is a small, close-knit department. I do believe that the professors within the department work very hard to make students feel like they belonged and to build a community within a community. Um, So that, what did that look like? I mean, it looked like informal mentoring or like me hanging out in my professor's office after class, you know, just building that relationship. It looked like them picking students and saying, hey, we've got a conference to go to. You're coming with us. I mean, they work really hard just to build that community within that department. Then when I went to VCU for graduate school, um, I went to the, um, I pursued a master's in public administration. So that's within the school of like public policy and affairs. And so entering into that space, it felt a little bit different. I mean, this is a larger university. It's definitely a diverse university, but entering into the graduate program, I was surrounded by a lot of people that did not necessarily look like me. Um, At the time I was young, some of my classmates were older. I'm obviously black. Mm, I would say the majority of my classmates were white. Honestly, in in most of my classes, I was like the only black person. And this was at that time. That was like a decade ago, Um, maybe 12 years ago. Um, And so a lot of my colleagues or uh, the students around me were men. So we have this dynamic of being white, men, older. Um, I was admitted to the graduate program on a conditional status. (laughs) Yes, conditional, right? I, I don't know. It was, I remember the letter just saying like your first semester or like your first year, you have to keep your GPA or something at a certain level. Um, I need to dig up the letter because I don't know, I have it, but so I just remember feeling just different, feeling othered, and I was pregnant my first year in grad school, so I just felt really different. Um, I was like 22, Black, young, pregnant. It was just different, and when I think about the processes within that entity. I don't know if those professors were intentional about making sure that certain voices didn't dominate the classroom um, or that every voice was heard. So that's what I mean when I say that a lot of the time, you know, my voice or knowledge being received is directly tied to you know, my power, my privilege, my position, but also what are the processes and structures in place at whatever entity there is? Um, 
And so like, it's no shade against them. I just don't know if that was a thought. Now let's fast forward thinking about my career journey. Okay, so I am a teacher by trade. I have a license to teach in the state of Virginia. And I taught the past 12 years, K through 12. That space um, is, I would say, when it comes to knowledge and voices being received and heard is very similar. You're, you're in a team of teachers. You have to plan together. You have to execute together. And certain <laughs> teachers, certain team members, their uh, presence, their knowledge tends to dominate the space. Um, and so that's something that we have to think of when we think about when we work together is how can we make sure that we're inclusive of all voices that are being heard, especially for people who may tend to be a little bit introverted. Um, I, I feel like a lot of the times no one really says like extroverts pipe down. It's always introverts. Why are you not speaking up? Um, and so now let's fast forward to now my career is very much tied into like higher education, the nonprofit realm and philanthropy. So this realm, <laughs> what I will say is that there are some organizations um, and some spaces that you step in that work intentionally to make sure all voices are heard. Um, and the way that they conduct meetings, the way that they ask questions and things like that. And then, of course, there are some spaces where, once again, it's more of a hierarchy um, type of structure. And so that really just depends from entity to entity or organization to organization. But now I do realize that I'm in a leadership position. I'm also in a position of power. And so I use my prior experiences to inform how I interact with other people. So that looks a certain way in the classes that I teach at the university. It looks a certain way in the meetings that I'm responsible for facilitating and conducting across organizations. I always think about like, how can I structure that so that I'm making sure that everyone has a chance to contribute if they want to um, without making anyone feel targeted or like I'm pinpointing them. So, yeah, I really think that my prior experiences on not being heard kind of plays into now I know that I'm in a position where people are expecting to hear my voice. Um, but I try to be intentional about like, how can I uplift, highlight and elevate the voices of other people? Uplift, highlight, and elevate <laughs> the voices of other people. Oh, I'm taking, I'm taking notes here. I'm taking that's that's a quotable. Okay, another quotable. I just have to, I I just have to hit pause on my agenda just real quick. I did not know that we had other things in common. So we're both HBCU grads, you know. I went to Alabama and so you know I love VA State. What you said about that provisional being admitted. So do you know? And I, and I want to speak positively because my major professor who was at Iowa State, he since uh, passed away, but and he was wonderful to me, though. And I'll say it, Dr. Rick Hall, Dr. Richard B. Hall, and may, may he rest in power. And my other committee member, Dr. Sanderson McNabb, who's also passed away, so may he rest in power. And I'll, just, I'll go ahead and just take just real, real quick because you're the most important person here. Uh, I get to Iowa State, 
in the summer before the fall started. Now, I also have a, I, I have a great GPA, okay, leaving Alabama and, and, then, and then working for a little while uh, for a service working there. And I work over the summer, do a successful research project, okay, successful research project, falls getting ready to start. And I'm and I'm uh, asked to be and I'm being admitted provisionally, which means that I don't get any funding. Mm. I'm like, wait a minute. So then I'm like, wait a minute. What was the purpose of me coming here this summer mm-hmm. to show you how good I am? Only for me to be admitted on a provisional. So then when Dr. Hall, you know, and he, he became a friend, you know, he told me that, and I I got to give him credit because he was gentle and nice to me. You know, he, he wasn't a jerk or anything like that. He was like, yeah, Thomas, well, that you in on a provisional basis and. If he would have said that to me a year before, I wouldn't have done what I did when he said it to me, which was I asserted myself. I said, well, Dr. Hall, tell me why I'm being admitted on a provisional basis when I know I have the GPA that you're looking for. GRE scores seem to match up. And I was here for a summer away from my family and friends working in a lab. Yep. He said it was something with my GPA. So just to let you know what happened, I spent a year as an exchange student at UGA. Okay. And my and I came back to AM. All you would see on my transcript was UGA and then went back to Alabama AM. Mm-hmm. So there was an assumption that was made that I couldn't handle it at UGA. And that's why I went to AM because I was at UGA my junior year. I had to I had to do something. I had to say, Professor Hall, oh, I need you to look at my GPA right there. You see that 3.75 GPA earned at UGA? I went back to Alabama AM. I didn't think that institution could handle the genius that I already had since I had to show them how smart I was. My institution gave me a chance, Alabama a and So I went back there and I decided they're going to get the graduation of this genius and not the other institution. You want me? Then you let me in for a master's, which I was admitted. And when I said that, I was like, so we either need to make this full admit or Thomas Easley needs to go back to Alabama because that's not going to work. I know that I'm good. And then I got full admit. You know, and I just want to say that I just uh, thank you for sharing that, because for everyone who's listening, I want you to notice that there's a similarity in experiences that we had from one type of institution to another one. Alabama and them, it's like they wouldn't let me fail. Alabama and them, if I wasn't in class and now I do, I do it now. Someone will come to my door. So when I was working at NC State and working at Yale, I always told him, I said, I'm bringing the HBCU to you. You don't show yeah. up, I'll be at your door. Yeah, not inappropriately, but. Hadn't seen you in four days. What's the problem? Mm-hmm. And and people had to adjust to that treatment. Like we don't do that here. And that's like, and that's also why you lose people here. Yep. And so you know, so I just say thank you, leader, for that. Thank you for demonstrating that and explaining that. And now I want to go to the next question. Okay, I'm sorry. I just had just okay. I just had, I just had to share that. And thank you so much. With you working in, wait a minute. No, I need to. I need the people to understand. This is an adjunct professor. We're talking to you, everyone. This is CEO we're talking to everyone. This is an executive director we're talking to everyone. And this is an educator. And I did separate them because sometimes dealing with the you know, environments is different. I want to ask you, leader, like what can you, in, in your opinion, what could either major science institutions, but I'm going to also say another one, liberal arts, what could they learn from primary and secondary educational institutions Related to, I'm 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 going to say inclusivity. I would say I I, I want to I would like to say conducting research, but I just want to just I would rather probably say handling business day day to day business. You know what could they learn from the spaces that you've worked in? 
to make right. it better for people who would have? So I have thoughts on this, um, just from like moving from the K through 12 environment to higher education, specifically in the Department of Teaching and Learning, where literally the majority of my students want to be teachers. Um, what I will say is that higher education is very much like um, rigid. Like there's a set <laughs> way of like teaching and the engagement gets lost. So I do think higher education could stand to look at K through 12 and see like, what are some of the engagement strategies that are being used? And we don't have to view this from like a kitty or like child point of view, just like what are some of those engagement strategies and how can we use that in the classroom in higher education? I will share with you that some of my students have shared with me that there are certain professors' classes that they attend um, that are very enjoyable. They want to go back for more, but the majority of their classes are boring. They're antiquated. They're outdated. Um, they use practices that are, are just not up to the times or that they feel like the assignments are like, why are we doing this? Um, and so I agree with them. <laughs> I have noticed the same thing. And so I even have to be reflective sometime and think about what are the things, you know, that I can do um, to keep engagement up. And like, I had one student who, who shared with me um, that he, he actually has narcolepsy. Um, and so that when he was, in grade school that before he was diagnosed, he would get in trouble um, because he was always falling asleep. And so then of course, there was one teacher who said, hey, I real mom, I think you really need to go look into what's happening. Like, I think something is going on. And so um, he was able to be diagnosed. And, you know, of course that fostered a greater sense of understanding. He shared with me that in the higher education environment, that it's a struggle for him. Not only is he dealing with the fact that he has this medical diagnosis, but just the sheer boredom. And so he asked me, he said, whatever happened to the field trips? Whatever happened to the games? Whatever happened to the, those engagement experiences that are fun? And I was just thinking like, wow, like, this is so true. Like there's gotta be a way to make sure that we're preparing um, students for the real world environment and that they have the skills that they need because they're going into the workforce. A lot of them are already in the workforce in their field. However, but there's gotta be that engagement piece as well. So some professors are doing that. And then some professors are just droning on and on, you know, their voice dominates the conversation. They're sharing the slideshow presentation, you know, the paper is due, and then, you know, that's it. 
Um, so I don't know what the answer to that is, but that is just what I have observed in my shift from K through 12 to the higher ed environment and what students at the university have personally shared um, with me. <laughs> There's, there's a book I just want to mention. It's called Walk In, Walk Out by Margaret Wheatley. And in this book, she talks about going, she and her partner went to different parts of the, of the world where environmental challenges were happening. Mm -hmm. The people, it, what the people realize is no one's coming to save you. Uh -huh. No one's coming to fix the, no one's coming to fix the issue that you're dealing with. So she said, what she witnessed was the people in the community solve their own problems like they turn their pollution you know into furniture they turn their trash into something that they could use like like they figured it out but everything started from them playing they had to get together and play not get together and sit in here lecture about you can use this and you can use that they literally got together and played childhood games and cultural games like i said this is around the world so i'm talking from brazil to south africa to ohio Okay, that that is what people did. And I just uh, thank you again for some more brilliance, you know, like you're mentioning that because when you say, what happened to the games? I'm like, four to four now, feeling like to Jay Z, four, four, four. What happened to the games? And it makes me think that's why I facilitate. You see me facilitate. That's why I facilitate the way that I do and try to bring games into it. So everyone, listen to Walida as she is breaking this down for you. And I am learning and I'm sitting up here writing it down engagement. So, Man, I, just, I got the question, but I really want to ask you. So it's like, because you have done the, the wisest thing that I think many people need to do uh, is, I'm not going to say should, because that's judgment, but I do think need. You reflected on your past experiences and you bring it up to now. And so my, now the next question is, is about maybe comfortability, belonging. And like, how, how has, your, has your experience in education been either what you expected or what you hoped for. And what I mean by that is like, do you feel you can be yourself? Um, in what ways, you know, has, and, and you can speak for a number of fields, Bianca, so I'm not trying to box you in, but I'm gonna speak for, I'm, I'm asking about education, but I know you have other parts to you. So if you wanted to add that, please, you know, please, please feel free. But in what ways is the educational field doing well? And then how can it do better? Okay, I'm saying the field in general, we've we, we spoken more about environments, and I'm speaking about the field, you know, the industry, if you will, the profession in general. Yeah, um, you mean better in regard to belonging and making people feel comfortable? You said it. You said it better than I could. Yeah, so I think education is making strides but I think there's a long way to go. So when I say making strides, there are bold conversations that are being had. Um, schools, and that when I say schools, I mean K through 12, I mean university. They are implementing policies to change their approach to things. However, what I will say is that it deeply varies from district to district from school to school, from university to university. You could be within one school district and there could be like 50 schools, right? And every single school could feel completely different. You know, I had this joke that the school system um, that I was in 
for nine years previously to me leaving. And I said, you know, they operate like the 13 colonies. Everyone is doing their own thing. <laughs> and so you could go to one school and there's a culture of belonging. There's a culture of uh, joy, inclusivity. Um, they have done strides or made strides to look at their processes, their procedures, and equip educators with the tools that they need um, to foster this community. And then there are schools that will be a few miles away in the same district under the same structures that feel completely different. And so you have to ask, like, what does that boil down to? And honestly, it boils down to leadership. It boils down to leadership. Um, you know, and when I say leadership, I mean the people who actually have the power to um, make and enact change. That's what it kind of boils down to. Um, but also knowing that fostering those environments take time. Like it's not a like, oh, we're going to do this in one year and all the things are going to be fixed and everything is going to be perfect. But like it takes time and it also takes dedicated people. Um, schools that tend to have a lot of turnover are going to struggle with this. Um, schools that tend to not have a lot of turnover or who have a core group of people who are like, you know what, we're dedicated to this. This is really hard. I'm going to pull my hair out, but we're going to see this through. They are going to tend to do better. Um, and so I've been in schools that have both. I've been in schools that have had strong leaders that have had teams of people who are dedicated to um, school change, educational change, social change. And then I've been in schools where like there's turnover with leadership, turnover with staff, there is no cohesive vision. Um, so I think that's what it kind of boils uh, down to. Thank you for saying leadership. As, with all of the conversation around education, I think we need to lean in, okay, uh, to to uh, to CEO Myrick a little, a little bit. I asked you something I probably should have started with. Why and how did you get, if, if I'm using the right word, cool, if I'm not, correct me, fascinated, uh, interested in education. I'm asking that because I'm an educator and I'll admit I'm in education because of my mom. My mom uh, was an educator and I'm an entrepreneur because of my mom. So I guess I really want to be like my mom, right? You know, mm -hmm. and I'm, but I'm curious, how did you, you know, who, who's been doing it? For years, I would say they've been doing it, you know, longer than me. Like what, like what was the seed, you know, that, that was planted that you said, I want to do that? Yeah, so I grew up in a really under-resourced community. But one thing I can say is that I had really strong, like, teachers. Like really strong teachers growing up in elementary school. Um middle school, high school. I had women role models that I looked up to. Like you would look at them like, I want to be like them. And you know, back, let's see, when did I go to school? When did I go to like elementary and middle school? Like the 90s? 
And so like that was when like teachers, they like dressed up and like they would have their little earrings on. Oh, and they you could smell their perfume when they walk by your desk. You could smell that perfume. It was from Macy's um, or or Hex or one of those uh, department stores and their nails were painted and the room was decorated perfectly and the lessons all went together. It was like whatever you was learning in social studies, it matched with what you were learning in math. I don't even know how they did that. Um, but, and, and you know what? Some of my teachers were sassy and funny. They were sassy and funny. And it's like, how did you all, like, how are all these characteristics within one woman? Um, and so I just remember seeing that over and over again and just remembering like, you know what, I think I want to do that. Um, and so that's what inspired me um, to want to teach. And then when I went to Virginia State University, I felt like I was embraced that, like I said, the Department of Teaching and Learning embraced me. They made sure that I did what I had to do. Ma'am, you need to go take this test in order to move, do this, in order to do this. Um, you know, they really embraced me. So that's what kept me there. Like, oh yeah, I know this is what I want um, to do. And so I would say definitely just having that role modeled for me. And then when I started teaching, you know, I remember student teaching that last year of like college and my cooperating teachers, they were really good. Um, they were strong. And I learned what I needed to know to go in the classroom from them. And then my first year of teaching, they assign you to a mentor. You get a mentor teacher. And my mentor teacher, I'm still connected with her to this day. Um, she is someone who took me in and said, this is what you need to do with the kids. This is not going to work. She would check on me. Um, that was my, my first year of teaching. As a matter of fact, I was pregnant and that team embraced me. <laughs> so I don't know what I'm getting at here, right? Probably just the people around me. And, and I love teaching. I love working with children. I love helping people grow and helping them reach their goals because that's what a teacher does. Um, you know, and they inspire people. We help people reach the goals that they want to reach. We help them draw conclusions. Um, we help them make decisions. We inspire all of that. And so I think it's crazy because as I'm talking, like something is clicking, right? We're in a dire teacher shortage. We're in like a really bad teacher shortage. And like, I don't know what the answer is to that. When your mind is a candle, and you don't need a Lambo, and your moves can be camo, they don't need to see your ammo, protect your heart, don't get entangled, keep your mind, see different angles, stay open, tune different channels, God don't give you more than you can handle. When your mind is a candlelight, it means that it's bright amongst darkness, that means folks can see you. That also means that you're thinking differently. You're not following everybody else. Hmm. So then when I say you don't need a Lambo, 
That means that you don't need what everybody else is looking for and what they have. Not that it's wrong to have it, but it doesn't even attract me. Like, I don't I don't have to see that. And then, say your moves can be ammo. That means everybody doesn't need to see what you're doing. Protect that. Keep some things to yourself. That's what leaders do. Don't be out here showing all your moves and don't try to be like everybody else. Do what you do and watch what happens. People will follow you. Listen to it one more time. Like there's, there's answers like, right. Pay them more, give them more time to plan and stuff. But like, I really do think that teachers just need to be wrapped in like love and care and support. <laughs> if that makes sense. It may. Listen, I'm, I was telling Bennett before you logged on, I'm reading a book called uh, You Can Heal Your Life right now. And that's actually, I've only gone to like chapter four, yeah, four, and uh, I just started looking at it this morning. And that is one of the, that's like the only thing that the author keeps kind of bringing it back for us to get through our challenges. She keeps saying, loving yourself, love, love yourself. And I remember when I went um, um, to Yale, you know, and I was brilliantly told, take love there. And I'll be honest, at first I thought, that's very simple. Like, no. But then, but when I got there, and I'm not saying love wasn't there. I don't, I'm not gonna say that. Okay. But but when I got there, I, I and, and in other places, you know, I feel that people are very on the hustle and bustle. You know, we're really trying to shine, you know, we're in this competition with each other. And to me, that's great. However, what I noticed is that kind of environment then makes people compete with each other. Mm-hmm. I think that those that that kind of energy now makes people question themselves. And then really, if you're doing it to yourself, you're going to do it to somebody else. That's the thing I've noticed. Like if I if I feel insecure about me, then I'm going to feel insecure about you. Or I'm probably not going to like you, especially when I see you shining. So I just I think it's so much wisdom. And, you know, you were saying it. And I really hope that as people are listening, that they can hear that and really take that. OK, that we need love. No, that's not too sensitive. No, that's not soft. That is literal because we are human beings. And if we're not loving ourselves, it's hard to love someone else. And if we're not in an environment where we're receiving it, then it's also hard for us to get it but it's not impossible and so with that i just want to ask you one other question by education because you have this other piece to you too or the other parts and not piece parts and that is about not gonna get political here but i do i would like to know if this is impacting anything that you know any of your engagement and that's in particular what's going on in the country right now around critical race theory crt um you know, um, I, you know, I, I, I definitely can ask you, you know, like, what are your thoughts on people, whether it's politicians or whoever, using that to campaign in an election, whether it's for or against, and you know, just how do you think that this impacts or affects your profession? You know, as a per as, and I just want to go back to say something that you said. I love teaching. We help people reach their goals. I love children. You know, so just. You know, having that, you know, is uh, is is just that a no okay question for me to ask about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, when I think about critical race theory, I think about like a theory that is very much rooted in teaching, like systemic racism and how it permeates the current environment that we're in. It's a lens that we look through. When I think about politicians <laughs> saying that, you know, critical race theory shouldn't be taught in schools, it's concerning for me because as a K through 12 educator, um, and I'm taking off my university lens right now, 
I had never known critical race theory to actually have been taught in schools. Um, and so I taught kindergarten, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. The last part of my K through 12 career was teaching just science and history. And so I had to have like deep knowledge of like the standards, the history standards. And I promise you that teachers are just teaching students history. They're teaching them how to analyze things from multiple perspectives. They're teaching students how to look at primary and secondary resources and analyze them. They're teaching them basic American history, basic ancient Greek and Roman and African history. Never have I seen critical race theory uh, taught. Anything that is being taught that is race related is just the facts. Um, and so <laughs> it's dis it was just disturbing to me that certain um, political candidates campaigned and made that a part of their campaign because they have significant influence over people, parents, communities. And to campaign on something that's just completely not true, it, it was like concerning. And so now when we look at the other side of that, in some places, those candidates are actually in office and now they are implementing policies based on that as well. Um, so yes, that is concerning to me now the university lens is different and it should be different because by then people have chosen their specific disciplines that they want to go into. People are at the university for a reason. And so if people want to teach about critical race theory, they should be able to. I know personally, the class that I teach, um, I teach like a community-based education class um, and like a nonprofit course we always look at things through a lens of um, social determinants of health, uh, racial inequity. Uh, we, we look at all of that because it plays into what I'm teaching. I'm teaching people how to go out and enact systems level change um, and develop programs to support the community. And so we have to look at those things. But as a K through 12 teacher, I have never ever seen <laughs> critical race theory being taught or even in any of the standards. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a bit concerning for me. And I do know that in some places, <laughs> there is policy that is being changed based on critical race theory. Um, and I won't name those places. You can do your own research, people. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for that. And here comes another point of question. Yeah, and just going off on that, I taught for two years in Los Angeles and then uh, a little bit in Minnesota. It's it's scary to see that because going into the classroom in certain conservative areas or certain areas, it feels like you can't really be yourself or bring your own history. The facts is yours. It's, it's the life that we live. And I know a lot of teachers will speak on the life that they live, but it's not seen as, even if it's not, critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Like what we're saying isn't critical race theory. 
as you were saying earlier, we're just we're just saying what we lived. Mm-hmm. But a lot of other educators can bring their full self. We need to stop short if this keeps progressing and progressing. So, yeah, it's it's very yeah. concerning. It was it's just crazy because I'm like, I promise you, teachers are just you know, reading some books and the kids are having debates. They're teaching their students how to think, um, you know, for themselves. They are reading books about, you know, great figures in history. You know, they're, they're learning about all these wonderful things that are historical facts, but you have inserted your own agenda and twisted it to something else. Um and parents and community members have latched on to that. Um, and that's all it takes. So as leaders, as politicians, we have to be careful about what we say, what we endorse. And then as people, can we just please research? Can we dig into things deeper instead of just listening to everything that's presented to us? You see someone in the news and it's true. You see someone on social media, it's true. A politician says this and it's true. No, you need to actually go read. You need to go look at some YouTube videos. You need to figure out something for, for yourself. <laughs> well, after Bianca, that, uh, unless, um, unless my brother has anything else, I, okay. I want to ask you something. Say, I, I just, I, I want to stay in the same vein. And this is what I mean when I say the same vein of an industry that wasn't created by us. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you about another industry that you're in or another profession that you're in. And that's being you now being the head of the Virginia Association of Environmental Educators. I got two questions about that, you know, because I've seen your work. So I, lo- I, lo- I love to see your work and how you're handling things. But how did you get interested in that? I have to ask, okay, as an educator myself who is working in the environment, too. And here's another one that's the co-host doing the same thing. <laughs> And um, uh, and I actually want to take my friend's question and maybe apply it to this one, okay? Which is, um, what struggles have you had in this role? Because you because you've given us the struggles in education. You 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 did that. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not trying to you know you assert that you already did it. But what about this? And let me ask you this what opportunities do you see, right? Because we're definitely about solutions. Since I've been working with you, that's all you've been about, <laughs> you know? So just challenges and then solutions, or maybe challenges and opportunities. Ooh, how about that? Challenges mm-hmm. and then opportunities. Yeah, so I came into this role um, my last year of teaching, which was just 2021, 2022. I said, I've got to leave the teaching field because, you know, I was already part-time executive director at another nonprofit, and it was not sustainable for me to teach full-time and fulfill that role. And so I said, you know what I'm going to do? I said, I need to find another part-time executive director role. And lo and behold, I saw the role um, open up for the Environmental Association. They were looking for their first executive director. They were an all-volunteer organization prior to. And I said, this is it. I said, I am going to apply for this. Um, I am not an environmental educator. However, I told you that my last few years of teaching were heavily focused on science. And in addition to that, I am passionate about the outdoors, specifically equitable outdoor access for people, because I believe that it contributes to an overall healthier um, lifestyle. 
And so I applied for the role and I got the role. <laughs> so now I'm like, oh, wow, I actually got this role. Now what, right? Um, when I came into the role, the first thing that I noticed was that there wasn't too many people that looked like me. There, it was really a space that was uh, dominated by white women. Okay. Okay. And so I was like, well, what is, like, what is this about? And so I began kind of digging deeper into that. So I think one of the major priorities was like, wow, we need to like diversify this organization. Um, and this was a shared priority. It was something that I really wanted, but that the organization also identified as a growth opportunity. Um, they wanted to diversify the organization, everything from the board members to potential future staff, but also the membership, because it's a membership-based organization. So I would say that's one of the major growth opportunities. Um, another one is something that many smaller grassroots nonprofits face is just making sure you have sustainable funding. Um, so what does that look like for a, an organization that was all volunteer? Well, I have to work with them to create a development plan. Like what does a sustainability plan look like for this organization? Um, so those have been two growth opportunities that really I'm centering and that I'm focused on um, is just diversifying the talent you know, we know that organizations, systems, policies, all these things that are in place were developed typically under one group of people. And so we know that we, we can diversify that. It's just going to yield um, more positive outcomes, perspectives, um, diversity of thought. Additionally, I would say in this nonprofit sector, a lot of the times organizations want to make an impact with communities that need it the most. And a lot of the times they will say those are historically marginalized communities, black and brown communities, rural communities, <laughs> communities that, um, have low assets. And I, I say low assets or like under resource because we've got to start talking from a lens that like, you know, shifts the responsibility to society and not necessarily the, the person. Um, there's a variety of reasons why someone may have low assets or why someone, you know, may be struggling financially. And so when I think about this space, in order to do that work, we need to be working alongside communities. We don't need people doing something for the community. We need to work alongside environmental educators. We need to figure out what do our teachers want. We need to figure out what do diverse communities want? Like what would make you want to become a member of our organization? Can we figure that out first? <laughs> Can we figure that out first? 
And then we'll talk about engaging diverse communities because diverse people want different things. And what we currently offer in our membership may not be something that's attractive to a certain group of people. And so I think that's really going to be my main focus is that development, resource development aspect, and then diversifying the talent. But first, we need to kind of just do some internal work. How do we operate as an organization? What are our ways of being? How do we move? Because even though we're our organization and we have our agenda, we're a part of a bigger ecosystem. Uh, And so like, how do we move and impact the greater ecosystem? So we're kind of figuring that out. And then we can kind of move into like the diversity piece. Okay, so uh, I'm t- I told you I'm taking notes. You hear that? Try. We got to figure something out. I just I want people to hear that we have to figure something out. Development, growth, and then the diversity piece. I, I love how you're doing, how you prioritize, and how to how to because I'm learning as I'm listening to you because you're growing, but you're growing in an inclusive way. You're bringing folks into this, and so with that. I, I, like I said, I can see, I'm excited. Y'all can see me. You can see me smiling, waving my hands. You can see Ben is smiling. And you see Bianca probably like, what are those guys doing? <laughs> All right, so I just have like two two more questions. And, and But it's not because I want to rush. I want to respect your time. And of course, my friend's time too. And I want to ask and I want to thank, thank my brother again for this one. As a, I'm, I'm just going to be real on this one because you and I know each other. We, we can talk like that. As yeah. a black man, because I identify as a black man, brother, black man. And then I would say anyone on campus, but right now I want to talk to about us because that's the identity that I have. That's the identity you know, that I share. What could I, what could we, you know, do to better support Black women in STEM? And I want to say but Black women in leadership. Okay. Mm-hmm. The reason why I'm putting them together, because I believe that where Black women are, divinity is, but you probably just haven't been there. You know, our presence, you know, your presence, excuse me, you know, hasn't been there like this. So that, you know, so that's also what I'm saying. And I'm just going to add, or anyone on campus, what could be done or anyone, period. So that, that's why I want to talk in the educational field, in, 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 in the, in the, um, in the um, environmental field, in the nonprofit. What could we do to better support our leaders that are Black women? So I'm going to share like some concrete things. And then I want to share like a short story. So I would definitely say continue to show up at our events, sharing resources with us, making um, connections, like being a connector. Like if you know that there's someone that we need to connect with or a resource that we need to connect with, be willing to share that. Um, Also, philanthropic investments. So Black and brown woman-led organizations are severely underfunded. Um, there's actually this like groundbreaking study that came from the Mrs. Foundation for Women. Um, it's called Pocket Change. And it's about, it shows the data and statistics of the philanthropic investments in Black and brown woman-led organizations and how we do way more with less. Um, That's what the report is about. Look it up. It's called Pocket Change from the Mrs. Women Foundation. And then it goes into like black and brown woman-led organizations that work with girls. 
So that includes like your STEM organizations and things like that um, and how they're severely underfunded. And I can speak to that because I'm ED of a girl-centered organization and I'm part-time ED. Well, I'm part-time ED because we're still building ourselves philanthropically. Think about it. So I definitely think supporting from that aspect, but also being aware of like just your power, your privilege, your presence, and how that can be a positive contribution to what Black women are doing. And, you know, speaking up when you see something or when you hear something. So I'll share with you, um, I'm in a leadership group with some executive directors from various organizations within the community. And the organizations are like, one's a food bank, one is like a youth servant. It's just a variety of organizations, right? And I'm probably, I am the youngest one in the group. The majority of the executive directors are like in their 50s. Um, And so we just have open conversation as a space for support. Um, It's like a collective and it's wonderful, I'll be honest, just because leadership can be a little bit isolating. And so one day we were having this discussion and I think I was speaking about like systems and shifting away from like traditional ways of working. I think I I can't remember. I think it was rooted in like um, white, it was about white dominant culture within organizations and how that permeates into the workplace and how that impacts how we work and how we do things. And one of the executive directors, you know, said, well, I agree with you, but I I don't know. We have to make sure that we're not too aggressive. (laughs) He made a comment about being aggressive and it was shocking to me because we were all just having conversation And so I could, everyone felt like this awkward pause. And then the one black man in the group, he said, well, I need to say something. And he basically said, well, who are you to determine what is aggressive when black women have had, you know, they've been under the gun and your foot has been on their neck for years and years. And he was like, so what is aggressive? She said nothing aggressive. She just made a comment about maybe shifting away from traditional work structures. And for whatever reason, you found that to be aggressive. And so in that moment, um, I just felt so grateful because I didn't know how to respond to him and I didn't even want to respond, but this black man stood up for me. This black man stood up for me and I appreciated that. And he was an older man. He was probably like in his 60s. And so, you know, he probably could relate to some of them, like being from a completely different generation. But he recognized like, you know, what you are saying is absolutely true. And for this gentleman 
to step in and talk about being aggressive or the approach is aggressive is just completely ludicrous. When does thinking about something in a different way become aggressive? I have to respect your time and minutes. And we're going to jump off. I am so minute. Listen, I'm not going to talk about it in a place, but I'm messed up right now because at one time I arranged to bring a brilliant facilitator to an institution I worked at. I won't say the name. She came in and she worked with the faculty. She's a black woman. Say her name, Allison Manswell, one of the premier diversity, for me, a mentor. So let me just say that, okay? She, she guides me. And she did phenomenal. I still remember the next day, we were unpacking what happened the day before. Oh, I got to say this, and it was also a Black man who's a professor who also came. They said, he was cool. We really enjoyed him. And no disrespect, because I got a lot of love for him, but no, he was boring. Because all he did was talk at you. She, she did something else. She had the whole group thinking out of the box. And I got to say this, they asked her to stay longer. That's the part that was fascinating. I keep going. And when they said the next day that she was aggressive, and I, I had to speak up. I was like, wait a minute. How was she aggressive when you asked her to stay and you asked her to keep going? And I was like, just because she's educating us on better ways of working with college students. I like, she's aggressive. And I'll be honest, Bianca, I did something. I said, you know what? I appreciate y'all saying that because you just helped me out. And I was the only black person in the room. I said, I figured out what the problem is. And it is y'all. Yeah. And the whole room paused. I said, you're the problem. I like, she didn't do anything. We didn't even pay her price. <laughs> And you say she's aggressive. So I just want, I just, I'm not, you know, not that you need me to affirm you and confirm anything you're saying. You know, I'm just, I'm just sharing that. Uh, and I'm not saying, I'm, woo, woe is me, because look what I did. You know, no, nothing like that. I'm saying here again, your story is um, your story. But so many people have similar, you see, I'm up, I didn't even know you've been through that. And I've had to be the one to do that. I'm like, hey, really? You know, so. The last question I have for you, Lita, because we're going to have to do a part two. Yeah, yeah. We got to get to this environment. We got to get into it. We can do a part two. Yes. <laughs> that was my way of asking you. So, yeah, I'm sorry. May we do a part two, please? Of course. Of course. All right, Lita. We've talked we're gonna about need to have a season. Oh, we're going to need to have a season four part two. Like, just repeat. Like, just have everybody on there twice. <laughs> so, I like how my brother's Four or five. Just every, yeah. I'm down with you, man. Let's do yeah. it. If, we, if, you know, if it works out. We've talked about Bianca education. Mm -hmm. We have touched on environmental, in my opinion, environmental education, but the Environmental Association. And we've talked about higher education. And we've talked about diversity without even really using the word and inclusivity. The reason I just wanted to do a quick run back over that is, is there anything else that you would like to tell me? Tell, you know, tell, tell Bennett, but tell anyone who is listening in particular about how to support, you know, and I'm gonna say just leaders, Okay, you know, because it's not, it, it doesn't, you know, I don't want to box anything in, but I'm just going to say, is there anything else that you'd like to share either about that or about education, anything that I have neglected to, to ask you? You know, I can't think of um, anything specifically. Um, I will say I know that the focus of the podcast is definitely like diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, justice. And so I just wanna encourage people to like not look at it through a lens of excluding people, 
Um, but just remembering that it's really a lens of thinking of like how what we currently have is really created just by like one group of people. And so it can't be for everyone. So how do we bring everyone in? It's really about, it's like really about like that togetherness piece. It's not about excluding anyone. And you shouldn't, um, while there may be uncomfortable conversations, it's nothing that's stated or presented or shared is meant to make anyone feel guilty. But like, how can you be a partner in the work to make sure that we're all moving in sync and that we're moving in a way that is inclusive of all perspectives. And so when we think about it that way, then it's like, okay, let's look at policy, procedures, practices, processes, um, and let's look at people. And, you know, the, like the five Ps, right? Policies, procedures, practices, processes, people. And how do we make sure that it's from a justice lens, that everything we do is equitable, um, that we're being inclusive, that we're thinking about accessibility. Um, and so I just encourage people to uh, look at it from that lens and know that there's not like this prescriptive set of like overturn or tear this down to make it right but that it, it's small steps. It's unlearning and relearning. We can't overwhelm ourselves. Like we've been drenched in this history for hundreds of years, right? So it's not gonna change overnight, but um, it's the small steps. There's conversation, there's the lens, there's like the aha moment. And then there's like, okay, how do we put this into action, right? This is Sarah Chisholm moment, dropping the mic. That's it. That's it. Dropping the mic on that. Okay. Policies, procedures, practices, processes, people. How do we do this through a lens and do everything in an equitable way and in an inclusive way? That there's not one prescriptive thing that we can do, but we can learn the togetherness, come together, figure this out, and then implement and do it together. Yeah. You know, that's that's me. I just hope that that's a decent example of listening to the leader, working to apply what she just said. And then saying it back to you, because I think that that's another thing people need to do. I'm listening to what she what to, I'm saying, not speaking to the audience. I'm listening to what Bianca is saying, and I'm writing it down in a way that will connect to me so that I can then implement it. Not challenging it, even though I, mean, I can ask questions. You know, I have nothing to challenge because because I'm just curious and I'm learning so much. And I am honored that you have shared this with me today or with us. Excuse me today. Um Bianca, we are definitely going to do a part two. We're going to, we're going to have to because there's there's these other aspects of you yeah. that I also think lend itself to what we do here in Hartwood as we talk about the intersections of DEI justice and access. And you have been a phenomenal uh, guest here. You have given us so much that we can uh, that we need to work to digest as well as apply. And uh, just love love to have you back on. And um, and uh, and I just want to say everyone who's listening. I want you to hear here again, realize that we're bringing in leaders who are pushing the envelope. And I'm going to say it this way, recreating, creating new envelopes. You heard what was just said. And even another one of our guests talks about being in environments that weren't meant for us. I like to say monocultures and still breaking through and making it, as Ray Charles would say, do what it do. But breaking through and making it progress, like you said, the leaders who do more with less and 
I'm looking at you when you're doing it and you don't even look like you're doing it. I'm looking at my mom and I always clap because she was the same way. She didn't look like it was, she made it look easy. And I would see her give children clothes, sometimes my clothes, bring money and doing all of this. And now I see why I work so hard to do it now. And I'm thankful that I connected with you and thankful that you came and you blessed the Hardwood Podcast. Um, everyone, uh, this was uh, another eye-opening and heart-opening uh, episode. Hopefully people of Virginia should be very proud. Got a strong representative, you know, uh, and I know I am just to know you. And everyone just take these these notions, take these words and apply them. And as you see, we're going to have our leader back on at some point. So if you're hungry for more, good. We'll bring her back for more. Uh, this is myself, Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley, working with my brother Bennett Alupo. We are Hardwood Podcast leaders and uh, having our wonderful leaders on. Until next time, everyone, you all take care, but also remember to give it to them. Peace.